In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, here as always with my grizzled veteran cop to my brash rookie cop, Mike Graham. Well, you got a lot to learn there, kid, about introducing people. I can tell you that much. Oh, you don't tell me what I got to learn. I'm going to do it the way I, however I want to do it. That's not how we do it on the streets. These streets get rough here. I just go by my Ryan, instincts. Instincts only take you so far. You got to have knowledge and heart. All right, we'll see about that, old man. We will see about that. Hello. <laughs> How's it going, sir? It's going pretty good, actually. It's good. It's a good day here at the household. All right. So today on the show, we are talking about Mind Hunter. And yes. a little a little background for our audience about how and why we chose this because you know, I would say in some ways it's a not necessarily a controversial issue, but it's a it's an intense one. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's hard to even think about for most people, I would say. Yeah, and you know, there are some obviously a lot of popular examples of some of the topics that we're gonna talk about as related to Mind Hunter, the Netflix series based on a book, especially recently. Um, the Ted Bundy documentary, you know, the Ted Bundy other, tapes, Ted Bundy tapes. Yes. Thank you. And, you know, we put the question up to our Facebook group. Do people want to hear about essentially serial killers, people with uh, sociopathy or uh, psychopathy issues? And and people said yes, unanimously, basically, yeah. except for my no vote, which I, which I honestly <laughs> was not surprised by. Um, <laughs> you know, that's why these sorts of things are so, so popular. It's why true crime podcasts are so popular it's why you know people are so fascinated by people who do terrible things right and it, because it is fascinating it, it's incredibly intriguing because you you just wonder to yourself why would somebody do something like this so ryan and i talked about it and we we're just like if we're going to do this how are we going to do it because we both of us did not want to sit here and glorify a murderer and put them on a pedestal and you know kind of praise them for what they did, especially the Ted Bundy tapes. They were, it was an entire praise of Ted Bundy and how cool he was for how he evaded the cops. Good looking, yeah, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. and so we just didn't want to do it that way. And Ryan mentioned doing Mindhunter because it's about the best way we could go about this. It's literally about the guy that invented modern serial killer profiling by interviewing, you know, serial killers and figuring out you know, what drove them to do what they did and what sociopathy is and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So our goal with this episode is to not focus too much of our time on the people who have done terrible things, but more on, you know, how they got that way, why they are that way and, and what we can learn from um, people who work with them. Right. Yeah. So we're not going into crazy details, but, you know, you can watch the show. That's right. All right, so with that <laughs> warning and uh, sort of upfront, let's do it. All right. In the dark, huh? We are. I have studied everything we have to offer. I've taken this ride out here with you, listened to everything that you've been kind enough to teach me, but I still think we are talking about something that we don't understand in the slightest. I was trying to help you. If you don't like it, go back to your bedwetting college kids and we'll forget all about it. Ada Jeffries and her son were killed for reasons we are simply not equipped to understand. It wasn't lust murder. It wasn't some random thrill killer who was born bad, and it wasn't a panty thief who wanted to change things up. It was an aberration. Let me tell you something about aberrant behavior, Holden. It's f***ing aberrant. If we understood it, we'd be aberrant too. Fortunately, it's not incumbent upon us to write a dissertation. Well, maybe we should. Why? Our job is to give him something he could not have figured out himself. I am sticking my neck out for you. No disrespect. At the moment, I just don't think we can say anything to a guy like McGraw with any kind of certainty. Let me ask you something. Where are you from? I was born in New York, but it's kind of a mixed bag. Okay. Well, that's what you are right now. A mixed bag. A little college education. 
education, some experience on the streets, some insight, a lot of force. I agree with you. It's been one step forward, two steps back. Well, let me ask you something else. Do you have a girlfriend? I do now, Bill, as it happens. Okay. So next time you're a long way from home and you flip your sh you find a payphone and you tell it to your girlfriend. Okay? Okay. How's that sound? It sounds okay, Bill. Today, we are covering the Netflix series Mind Hunter, based on the real life work of former FBI agent John Douglas. Starring Jonathan Groff as Holden Ford, Holt McCallany as Bill Tench, and Anna Torv as Wendy Carr. Set in the late 1970s, Holden Ford, a hostage negotiator for the FBI, is put out to pasture and assigned the job of teaching cops around the country about criminal motive with Agent Bill Tench. While traveling the country, Ford's curiosity surrounding the psyche of what he calls sequence killers gets the best of him. Under the nose of his superiors, Ford starts interviewing Ed Kemper, a man who is serving a life sentence for indescribable crimes. Ford believes he is learning valuable information that could help the FBI solve similar crimes and save lives. His partner, Bill, begrudgingly goes along with him, but eventually sees the same importance in the interviews as Ford does. As the FBI embraces the program, Ford, Tinch, and their outside consultant, Dr. Wendy Carr, are able to interview several of the sequence killers and build the foundation for modern serial killer profiling. I feel like you should end there, and these are their stories. Dun-dun! <laughs> the law and order sound? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it dun, feels dun, like we're, yeah. we're really digging into some some police work stuff, you know, which, and it's interesting because growing up, uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad was actually in the FBI. And now anyone that listens to this podcast, um, I'm swearing you to secrecy, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah, yeah. He was in the FBI. So having that in my family history, this was something that, you know, I sort of secretly thought was a possibility for me, like the kind of FBI profiler gig. Oh, wow. I mean, it's an interesting gig for sure. Yeah. Or at and least, at least on the surface of what you see, you're like, oh, that would be super cool to go out there and do this. So to that end, like I've really related to to Holden. Um, I could relate to how sort of curious and interested he was and in how uh, the, the brains and thought processes of these people's, these killers' brains, how their brains worked. I could really relate to that. And in that sense, I really liked his character, even if he did some, eh, some, some questionable things. <laughs> Definitely questionable. Well, you know, and kind of how he got there is he starts out as a hostage negotiator. He kind of negotiates this thing between a guy who's who's having some sort of breakdown and has a few hostages. He goes to to help, you know, get him out of the situation and it doesn't go well, at least in Holden's mind, it doesn't go well. The guy ends up doing something bad to himself. Holden seems to seems to take it pretty hard, but he doesn't really take anything hard. But but he at this point, you see his curiosity start to wonder, like, why do people do things that they do? He ends up with Bill Tinch going around teaching cops things and finds himself in a situation where he's able to start interviewing serial killers. Sequence killers, as they call Se them. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, they didn't even have the term at the time. That's right. Yep. And, and he yeah, he's just driven by this this curiosity to figure out why people do these things sort of kind of jump out and get there right away is from doing our research and doing my research, I got really confused as to what Holden was seeing in these people as far as like what a diagnosis would be for someone who acts this way. Seems like there's several terms out there that go around. And part of what we do on the show is, is to kind of, you know, help people realize what's real and, and what's being fed to us and those kind of things. So what I saw was psychopathy, uh, sociopaths, and antisocial personality disorder. And they all seem to be the same exact thing from what I, <laughs> but I know they're not. So what are we looking at so we can kind of set up the borders for how we're going to talk about it? 
Yeah. So, so thank you for that setup because I think this is, and it's interesting. So, um, I answer questions on Quora sometimes, and this is by far one of the most popular questions that you see like therapists and psychiatrists asked is basically, you know, am I a sociopath? Am I a psychopath? Like I do this, I think this, I feel this way, you know, am I one of these um, types of people? Can I um, answer I'll, that? Please. If you're, if you're wondering that and you're concerned that you're a sociopath, the odds are you're not. Yes. Good, good answer. Right. Because <laughs> it, it implies some level of self-awareness, whereas a true psychopath, a sociopath will be unconcerned with their sort of uh, personality and how it would impact other people. Right. So to, to answer the question, both sociopaths and psychopaths, and we'll go into the differences, they are subtle, but they are relevant. Both would fall under the diagnostic criteria of antisocial personality disorder. Now, that term, while it technically did exist back in the time uh, portrayed in Mindhunter, as we can see from the sort of uh, development of the, the series, you know, psychology was not something that was really involved with law enforcement. So it's really just getting started. Obviously, you didn't even hear the term serial killer. So, you know, they were very far from being able to link up things like antisocial personality disorder. Psychopaths, sociopaths would both technically fall under the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. But we can break that down even further. So sociopath and psychopath are not diagnosis. Correct. Um, there is no like you're not you wouldn't be diagnosed as a sociopath. You wouldn't be diagnosed as a psychopath. You might have uh, traits might be referred to as sociopathic or psychopathic. Or, or behaviors that might be described that way, but there okay. is no uh, psychopath or sociopath diagnosis. In fact, in the DSM, which uh, therapists and psychiatrists use to diagnose people for reference, both of those terms you will find in the section for antisocial personality disorder. So, so common features that uh, psychopaths and sociopaths have in common and that are also indicative of antisocial personality disorder would require someone to have three or more of the following traits. So I'll just go through the big ones regularly breaks or um, like skirts the law, like basically doesn't care if they, they break the law or not. They constantly lie and deceive others. They are impulsive and don't necessarily plan ahead. And there's some differences with um, psychopath and sociopath on that one in particular. They can be prone to fighting or aggressive behaviors. They have little regard for the safety of others. They are irresponsible and in, in the sense that they maybe can't meet financial obligations or can't hold the job, another one that might break down in between the two, and finally doesn't feel remorse or guilt. And that's obviously a hallmark of a lot of these uh, individuals right. that Holden um, runs into, that despite the horrible things that they've done, they almost universally show little to no remorse or guilt about those actions. So that's antisocial personality disorder um, broadly. Would they break it down for a serial killer? Like, let's think about like Ed Kemper. They, they mm -hmm. refer to these people throughout the entire series as, and they, they switch back and forth between psychopath and sociopath. They say it multiple times. The first person he winds up interviewing after he goes on the road to train cops with Bill Tinch, he winds up uh, interviewing under the nose of his actual superiors, uh, Ed Kemper, who's a real person in real life. And actually, from what I read about this in the series, their conversations, a lot of it was pulled from the actual real interviews. So what, what you're hearing the actor who played Ed Kemper say, which is some of the things he says is, is kind of like chilling, it is real. And some of the things that you see with Ed Kemper when he talks to him is early childhood problems. Trauma, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, trauma too. Uh, trauma in the childhood, uh, but also conduct problems. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the killing of an animal, which is like another one of those big hallmarks you hear about in the movies. He did a stint in a mental institution because at 15, he actually killed his grandparents. Right. The mental institution let him out at 21 saying they felt he was re rehabilitated and that he was no harm to society. He did go on to kill several women, including his mother and her best friend. Yeah. However, he was tormented by his mother, hated his mother, absolutely hated his mother, always felt like he would have had a better life if he had been with his father. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the real version. They actually don't say that in, in the show. But, but he did. He had real big mother problems. So is that antisocial personality disorder? 
does it fall under like psychopath or sociopath? I'm just wondering how it works. Yeah, so it would absolutely fall under the broad um, antisocial personality disorder. You know, obviously he breaks the law. It's interesting, he doesn't actually fall under the sort of constantly lies from what we can tell. I mean, he did sort of allude to the fact that he sort of befriended cops and that to yeah, the point that they right. actually didn't think he was a, a, a suspect. Yeah, the cops really liked him because he, yeah. he had a good personality from, from yeah, what people Yeah, he's sort said. of funny, sort of friendly, yeah. But obviously, he is prone to aggressiveness, little regard for the safety of others. You know, he did things to cats. He did things, obviously, to family members. So, And I don't recall, you know, at the level of irresponsibility he had. I don't think he held down any long job. You know, he wasn't working, at least not to my memory, but clearly very little to no remorse or guilt. So I think Mr. Kemper falls a little bit more under the sociopath where some of the things, especially initially, felt more impulsive. You know, we know that he had a very negative uh, household growing up, uh, to a certain extent experienced various forms of trauma. And some of these are things where the sort of psychopath and sociopath diverge. As I mentioned, um, the impulsivity is more a hallmark of sociopaths. Whereas psychopaths tend to be more thought of as like meticulous planners. And and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong here. I know some of the violent acts that Eddie Kemper uh, committed were planned, but I think in a large part, it was also like saw someone and just impulsively decided that this was the next person, right? Um, yeah, no, yes. It reminded it, him of someone and blah, 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 blah. Well, they all, it was all about his mom. Right. Absolutely. It was, he was definitely every poor woman that he attacked reminded him of his mom in some way but the one thing he did do was he trained himself right yeah. so mm -hmm. he he practiced yep until he perfected it so they did eventually or uh put him in the square of what's called an organized killer right because of the way he did that but his actual crimes were like he didn't say i'm going to go out on tuesday night right. uh, as far except for his mom, he did plan that a week in advance. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's that's where it gets complicated. Well, that's why, and that's why these terms are so often interchangeable. Because even though sociopaths are more often thought of as you know erratic and unplanned, people that commit these acts can sort of go back and forth in between sort of how uh, meticulous planners they are, how charming they are, and and um, you know getting away with and and acting quote unquote normal in society to fit in. So that's why the sort of antisocial personality disorder is a better way to categorize what we're looking at because it, it more appropriately encompasses the various behavior and, and personality traits. Because Ed Kemper is the only one in the series that really highlighted this for me with the personality thing, the, the like really awesome personality to where people really, the cops at least, he always seemed to like kind of break down barriers where the guy even caught him, like, just didn't believe he was guilty until he just kept going on. In fact, Ed Kemper actually had to turn himself in because, right. like, he just wasn't on their radar. Yep. And this, this lines up with Ted Bundy, too, because you hear about that with Ted Bundy as far as the personality thing. And, you know, and I, I'm probably saying it wrong, psychopaths or, or whatever, seem to be able to fake people out as to who they really are on the inside by putting on, like, a total mask on the outside and, and I guess I'm just wondering, like, does that line up anywhere with these things or how does that work? Like, why, why would somebody like do that? How does that, where does that come from? Well, the why is, is the sort of impossible question with a lot of yeah. these people and a lot of these acts, right? Is sort of the understanding, why would somebody do this? In some cases, there are sort of clear psychological explanations, you know, with Eddie Kemper, he talks about, you know, things, comparing things to his relationship with his mother, and, and to a certain extent, other um, people who have committed such acts talk about sort of feeling a, a, an emptiness or a void that they're trying to fill by repeatedly doing these, these heinous acts, right? So there are some consistent factors that, that people who do these things report. But actually, what's really interesting, and that's, that's sort of broadly being more and more researched, is that psychopaths in particular have actual brain differences from regular people? Yes. Okay. And, and, and well, technically, and again, this is the research is, is recent and, and we can, maybe we can put some in the show notes, but it is not necessarily so specific that they're able to uh, differentiate psych psychopaths from sociopaths. But basically, in, in specific research they did of psychopaths, like people that met these characteristics, that they actually have like noticeable brain differences 
in the portions of their brain that uh, regulate emotion and uh, impulse control. Hmm. So um, thus you get that sort of like cold, emotionless person that doesn't care uh, who they hurt or what they do. If they want to do it, they will do it. And it doesn't matter if they're breaking the law or if they hurt someone. So are people just born this way or is this something learned or is someone literally born and this is just how they're going to be like as a serial killer going to, you know, serial kill, you know, from so, the moment of birth, it's just going to happen. And again, this is something that the, the research is divided on, um, that when you really push people to differentiate so sociopaths versus psychopaths, one of the differences that they, that they point to, which is, again, this is not unanimous, um, is that psychopaths, there are more hereditary or biological traits that are inherited, passed down, and that's as evidenced in the brain differences that we see. So psychopaths are more thought of as, you're born this way. Uh, your brain is this way from birth. Um, it's going to make things very difficult for you to conform to societal standards. That doesn't mean you're automatically going to be a serial killer, but it does mean that you're going to have a very difficult time relating to other people in a, an appropriate way. Um, whereas with sociopaths, it's more thought of as nature um, in the sense that there's more likely to be some sort of childhood trauma that is being sort of compensated for with you know, uh, this like erratic impulse control behaviors. And there's actually some, some other evidence of that as well. And there's in these cases where when people have had brain damage, that they all of a sudden start to have the characteristics of a, let's say psychopath, um, oh, where it's wow. like, okay, yeah, exactly. So when you have, um, brain damage, certain parts of your brain, you become susceptible and more likely to start exhibiting these characteristics. How would you feel about somebody that was born this way and their brain was different and horrible things happened and, you know, they had no support throughout their lives to in any way know that they needed to rein themselves in or, or however you want to put it. If they put this up as a defense of saying, I was born this way, you know, I can't help it. Like, how are we supposed to say, well, that doesn't matter. Well, um, right. We're, it's not, we're not supposed to say it doesn't matter because someone who's born with, um, let's say, these brain differences may not be able to control their ability to regulate their emotion or control their impulses as well as you or I, who does not have that brain difference or brain damage. But we certainly, and it's, it's my job to do this, um, can empathize with the fact that this is not something in their control. And this is this is the big presumption, right? That if they're in my office, we're assuming that they want to, at the very least, be able to live within society's laws, right? Right. And even if they're you know mandated to therapy or mandated to inpatient treatment, they're there because they you know because sometimes people are mandated to treatment and refuse, so they just go to jail. Would they could still get treatment, but but not the same as if they're offered this different opportunity. If they want to make these changes, it's okay. You know this about yourself. And and to be fair, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, I would say most people don't have the access to an MRI where they could definitively say, yes, my brain is different or yes, my brain is, you know, like the brain of a psychopath. So right. we have that, have that caveat. But unless they then went and committed this crime, you know, <laughs> right. Exactly. And then somebody was like, we yeah. got to we got to figure yeah, yeah. this out. Yeah. So we're, we're presuming that people want to change in those situations. And if that's the case, our job is to empathize with them and to help them sort of create a structure for themselves that even if they don't feel empathy for other people, or if they can't connect with other people on an emotional level, how can they live within society and not end up in prison for doing something terrible? So I want to jump over here because you said Ed Kemper was most likely a sociopath because of his impulsiveness when he did commit the crimes. However, we do have one of these guys that they see, we see throughout the whole series, like either at the beginning of an episode or the end of an episode. And this is kind of scary for me to say because he lived, you know, only three hours from where I'm at. And that's the BTK killer from Wichita, Kansas. This guy has to be the most organized person like that you can imagine as far as the way he went about doing these horrible things. He started in the 1970s uh, and went through the er into the very early 90s before he quit and taunted the police the whole time, sending them letters saying, you, you know, you can't catch me or I want 
I want credit for this. He even named himself. Like, ironically, like they laughed about how you can't name yourself. And then one of those names ended up being him. He eventually got caught because he was decided to start taunting them again in the 2000s and didn't know how a floppy disk worked and sent that in. And they got the metadata off of it. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, would you describe this guy and the way, and I'm sure you're aware of how he, I mean, his name was BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill. Yeah. Um, would this be a psychopath over a sociopath? Uh, yes. So you're, you're more, um, uh, there's some of these other very well-known uh, serial killers, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, um, the BTK killer, are, are very neatly fit into what we call unremorseful psychopaths. Mm. And this is like the movie definition of what yeah. a serial killer is, right? Yes. This this sort of planned out to the certain extent, the sort of ability to be charming, but they intentionally seek to minimize risk of their behaviors because they know what they're doing is wrong, but they don't care. Right. So there's no guilt there except for the right. fact that they don't want to get caught. Correct. Until it becomes sort of a game, and in which case some of these people do in some way like start taunting the the people that would catch them yeah i don't know it's just it's frightening and interesting at the same time um but one of the reasons why i think it was important to talk about this is one to try to kind of give people you know a quick idea of the fact that there really is kind of three you know two categories to this sociopath psychopath they're both really actually under the umbrella of antisocial personality disorder I guess the good thing we can really take from Mindhunter is the last episode of the first season. And that is he interviews all these bad guys and we finally get to a point where uh, there's a, there's a crime that takes place. And because of all the things that they've learned for profiling, they are able to get somebody to confess to a crime that they probably wouldn't have been able to before figuring this stuff out by talking to guys like Ed Kemper. So I'm just yep. wondering, like, Ryan, like, what is, like, where's your moral stance on, on A, like, the fact that we're talking about Mindkiller um, and, and shows like that coming out? Mindhunter, yeah. Yeah, and did I say Mindkiller? Yeah. <laughs> Mindhunter. So I'm just, like, where do you sit as a therapist? Yeah. Like, thinking about what that what that can do to, like, people watching TV and stuff like that. Just wondering where you sit on that. Yeah, so I, I, the reason we chose this one, I think, is because it does take this very empathic and empathetic look at the the people around serial or sequence killers, and that's the the people that would be, you know, their loved ones. And very in several scenes, we see the the people around the people that either were victims or that knew the killer. We see the impact that it has on Holden and Tench. You know, when they're constantly inundated with these violent images and uh, the way that these people talk about the things that they've done, it has a clear impact on on them, on their personality and on how, that, how they interact with people. So I, I really appreciated that aspect of the portrayal because as a therapist, I'm way more likely to see someone who's been negatively impacted by a person with antisocial personality disorder than I am to actually see someone in treatment who has antisocial personality disorder. So as a therapist, I, I, I want those people to get the attention. I want the, the victims. I want the, the people, the families, the, in, even in some cases, I want the therapists, the, the people that are impacted by, and that's, a, that's not to say that I'm not empathetic to people with antisocial personality disorder. I absolutely am. I've worked with them, the people who want to change and, and who are aware of how, you know, their personality disorder affects them and people around them. I am I am fully on board with them getting help. But I think what's lost a lot of times in the sort of glorification of serial killers is the the victims. You know, yeah, this we know, isn't we just know a the movie. names. Right. We know the names of, of all these terrible men and women, there are a couple of them as well, but um, we know their names. We we often don't, and I would say the majority of time, we do not know the names of the victims and the families and the people that had to live in and around these people that did such terrible things. So that's that's where my moral center is. Oh, no, and absolutely not. And you're completely right. That's the last thing 
that you really hear about. So, and you know, from a media standpoint, um, you know, obviously we're, we're Pop Psych 101. We talk about how things are portrayed in the media. I am happy with the sort of recent shift of, you know, news organizations going away from using killers' names and faces on the magazines and front pages. And, and instead, you know, talking about victims and talking about ways to change and, and things that need to be done to protect ourselves. Um, that's a change I'm very happy about as I get off my soapbox. Okay, so Holden Ford goes throughout this series and he, he interviews several, several people. They're all real people. All these people are in jail, obviously. That's where they're meeting them. Some of them have passed away in jail. Some of these guys have been executed and a couple are still alive. The one thing they all have in common is that they were all incarcerated. So my question being, and I don't know how many of these guys tried to go this path. A lot of times they don't, but there is a, a plea that people make when they're being charged with such a serious crime as murder. And that would be the plea of insanity. I couldn't think of a better thing to say than I'm a literal psychopath in the fact that I have like an issue with my brain. I'm insane, so, you know, you should go easy on me or something. Now, I'm not going to, my opinion does not align with the question that I was just saying there, but do you think that, like, sociopaths, psychopaths should be able to use this as a plea of insanity? So, I'm very happy to educate the public on this question because I do think it is sort of something that comes up in more in, like, pop culture than it does in reality, where like your your bad guy can just plea insanity and then like gets away with it or like just does just gets jail time or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm insane. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like the like the, if you put the Joker on the stand, right? Very few serial killers um, suffer from any mental illness to such a debilitating extent that they are considered to be insane by the criminal justice system. Um, wow. And this is this is from an article on Psychology Today. Just to clarify. To be classified as legally insane, an individual must be unable to comprehend that an action is against the law at the exact moment the action is undertaken. So to clarify that, when the person commits the crime, or in this case, the murder, at that moment that they're committing it, they must be unaware that it's illegal, unaware that it's wrong, essentially. And as we just talked about, almost all of these people, psychopaths, sociopaths, are still sane enough that they're aware what they're doing is wrong. They just don't care that it's wrong. Huh. I, I, and I'm just wondering, like, is that raw? Is that law written this way to make sure people that make these decisions are held accountable and they can't use that as an excuse? Yes. Um, so we don't want people to get a lesser sentence um, for their heinous crimes just because of their alleged uh, mental status. You know, and, and I would have to even do research to, to, to find any examples of murders that have been committed and people actually did get the insanity plea. Um, I know of a couple. Yeah. And they both involve the Ouija board, actually. Oh. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of people have killed uh, after Ouija-ing a little Claimed bit. insanity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they got it because they didn't know what they were doing, they say. Well, but they're lying, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. But it's a good thing that they're still held responsible. Oh, absolutely. So here yeah. we are. Yeah. So so you're talking about that you have seen some people with antisocial personality disorder in your own office. And I don't want people to be just like completely frightened if they knew that someone had this just because like they listened to our show or they watched a movie or anything like that. So I'm wondering, like, these people can be normal good people i would assume that has to be true and so i'm wondering if that's true and then what do you do to kind of work with someone like this i guess if you wanted to sum that up yeah so two quick stories because so obviously it can be scary you know i'm not intending to scare people but it's it's important to know that the types of people you might be dealing with and sort of whether or not someone is antisocial personality disorder so um do you want the scary story first or second uh, well, second, cause we gotta, you know, you gotta climax up. Oh, geez. Okay. So the first story <laughs> is, is not scary, but more sad and more sort of empathetic towards people who um, might have these characteristics, but do want to change to some degree. I was working in an inpatient substance abuse unit and, um, I'll never forget this, that I was working, um, with a young man 
who to a certain degree was aware that he sort of had some of these qualities, you know, was in and out of gangs, did some things he wasn't proud of, you know, he wanted to get better, but you know, he also recognized that he wasn't really sure if he wanted to get better just because he was there because the courts wanted him to be, or, you know, because he actually wanted to change his life. Right. Cause he was in trouble. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I'll never forget in group one day, we were sort of talking about things like motivation and sort of what helps people get back on this path of getting better. And he kind of recognized in a moment and, you know, just blurted this thing out that we all sort of were like that. Who did that just come from? And he said, the magic pill is caring and I don't care. Hmm. So he recognized that to change, you have to want to change. You have to care enough about changing if you're going to change. And if you don't care, you're not going to change. Right. And he recognized enough in himself that he did not care enough to change. And that, that to the degree that he could feel that was sad about that, that right. Cause he he's like, look, yeah. How am I going to take this pill? I, yeah. I don't have the skill to take the pill, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a rhyme. I'm, I'm making that album. <laughs> It's copyright Mike. Well, thank you for ruining that that poignant. Oh, moment. sorry. <laughs> Very. But poignant. yeah, because oh, because it's you know you you asked before like you know what what happens when they're in if if someone's in my office and it's like that's what it looks like. It's they're forced into a situation where they have to wrestle with the fact that they may not care enough about themselves or their impact on other people to actually make behavioral changes. So wow. it's a tough situation to be in. Wow. Um. So in that sense, I I tried. And the group tried to empathize and sort of help this person, you know, motivate themselves. But at the end of the day, you know, if that's how you feel and you don't see yourself as capable of changing, it's going to be hard to change. There's no question about that. Yeah, I'm sure. So that's the sort of sad end. Um, and I have interacted with the scary end, too. Now, this person that I interacted with was actually not a patient, but a family member of a patient. And I had a, I guess you would say a family session with this other person for the first time. And the way they introduced themselves to me was to say, I just want to let you know, um, I did some Googling of you beforehand, and I know you have a wife and a daughter, and I just wanted to let you know that, you know, I, you know, I know who you are. And what, um, so just, and, and, you know, now that you know who I am and, and who, and I know who you are now we can get started. Not, not that, Hey, Hey, Mr. Ingolstadt, I read your reviews. Right. Of, of patients that have seen you, I looked your family up. Essentially. So oh, that's that is a very sort of manipulative thing that would be a hallmark of, of someone who has these sort of personality characteristics because they want to be uh, in power. They want to be in control. Understandably, someone who's coming into a family therapy session might not feel totally in control. They might feel on the defensive, as this person probably did, and might seek to make a statement or a weird veiled threat to put themselves <laughs> back in control. I prefer w weird veiled threat. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I've had that uh, end of the spectrum as well. As you can imagine, that was a little scary and I had to go through and make sure all pictures and links of mine were, were pretty well scrubbed after that. But yeah, you know, that's, that's the reality of being a therapist, especially one with a, at least a somewhat of a public profile that you do kind of have to be on on um, on alert for that kind of behavior. Absolutely. But be that as it may, my job is still to be open and to be willing to connect with a person if they show the same willingness. Um, and even if they don't, like if someone's in a, a mandated situation, I still have to do my duty to um, give them the benefit of the doubt. So um, that's what I try to do in, in, in as many cases as I can. I've never felt like my life was in danger. You know, the closest I've ever felt to being in danger was when I worked in a building that I was pretty sure was haunted. Um, <laughs> but that wasn't that wasn't because of anyone I was working with. OK, well, guys, we have to take a break and then we're going to be back with a really heated debate between Ryan and myself. You're listening to Pop Psych 101 a show discussing mental health and pop culture through two perspectives, a therapist and an advocate. We explore the accuracies of how mental illness is portrayed in movies, books, and television, for better or worse. All right, we are back. 
Today on the second half of the show, we're going to be doing our awesome segment, Unpopular Opinions. If you haven't listened to the show before, Ryan and I, one of us is going to have an opinion that might be unpopular, and we're going to debate it. So here we go. Unpopular Opinions! Okay, Ryan. This is going to be the first time that I get to lead this off because this is my unpopular opinion. Yeah, I mean, realistically, I don't know how unpopular this opinion is, but it's unpopular with me. So that's good enough. You get to lead. That's exactly why it's unpopular, because it's unpopular with you. There you go. Fact, well, you know, I had this. This popped in my mind. Yeah. And I was like, I'm a genius. And then I typed it into Google and I'm not a genius because a lot of other people have already thought of it. However, I still agree with it. And I thought of it on my own. Okay. Well, let's, so here, let's hear it. So here is my theory. And Ryan does not like this theory. And my theory is that the main character, um, based on John Douglas, Holden Ford is his name. I think that Holden Ford is a psychopath. Okay, Mike, show your work. Or a sociopath. Can, I, can we just go ahead and just do it like all-encompassing? Uh, if if you want more room for wiggling, yes, sure. I want I want some wiggle room here of because I'm like because I was gonna say You're he's gonna a sociopath, but he's pretty dang organized, so I switched over to psychopath. That's fine. All right, all right, okay. Well, I don't want to give it all away. <laughs> oh, do, so do you want me to start and and just yeah, and, you start, you go okay. ahead, and I want to come back at you. Okay, obviously, I do not think that Holden Ford is a psychopath. Um, I think specifically, I, I I'm anticipating some of your points here, but you know, I know it appears as the series goes along that he sort of starts to become um, a little bit colder, a little bit less empathetic, perhaps to a certain degree more impulsive. But for me, and I'm happy to back these up with various uh, points about the character. You know, the fact that he uh, works for a division of law enforcement. To start with, um, you know, implies mm. that he not only respects the law, but I would say, and I can't think of any examples in the show. Does he actually break the law at any point? Oh, yeah, of course he does. Absolutely I know he like, does. Like he breaks actual written laws. I know he like just dis, like disobeys. His interrogation laws. Absolutely. Yes. What, what interrogation laws does he break? He stops recording his interrogation. In the but middle it, of an interrogation, that's is, against is that the law. like he broke a law or he broke a like a, no, a rule? No, that is against the law. It's a due process violation. Okay, all right, I'll give you that. So, yeah. I, but but so be that as it may, I mean, I, I don't think that, I don't think that decision on Holden's part um, makes him a psychopath. I think that makes him a somewhat of a uh, overeager. Uh, rogue agent, perhaps, which he would certainly qualify as, you know, especially based on the sort of portrayal. But um, I have okay, no problem here, saying that he's here, not a psychopath. Go ahead. I'm coming at you. Already. So you're just talking about he's he's working for this thing and he's a law enforcement guy. Well, you said yourself that that uh, psychopaths and sociopaths can be very successful people and contribute to society. He is doing that uh, as an FBI agent. However, Holden Ford is not does not grow cold. He is cold from the get-go. As far as romantic relationships are concerned, he is uh there's no there's nothing from him to her at all to Debbie. Nothing comes out from him. He only talks about himself and she responds to him. They even have that argument about that. He has no care or feeling for or awareness of anything happening around him at all he he's doing these things and going and originally it's under the you know he's not supposed to be doing these interviews with like ed kemper and bill tinch is like what the f are you doing and like he, there's no guilt there like he does not feel remorse for any of his actions at any point to the fact that when bill is getting angry and standing next to him or or the awkwardness is filling the room with with the way he's talking to the uh, people he's interrogating, Holden Ford does not flinch. He doesn't care. He does not care about what other people think about him in the slightest. And that's only that's just one thing. And he's got a huge ego. Well, we we know that ego is, is on its own is not necessarily a hallmark of any of the things we've talked about. 
But I, I, I want to say that I think he does show empathy for Tench um, in particular. There are some, a couple of um, sort of uh, connecting moments that we see between right. them as Tench starts to struggle with his own uh, marriage yeah. and family stuff. And his no? son, yeah. Yes. So but, for me, that's clear sign of, um, of ability to empathize and ability to connect. That, that's not fake. That comes right after a point of contention between Bill and Holden, though. But they get into a car accident mm -hmm. and it gives Holden time to think, I got to pretend to be empathetic to oh, him to get him back on my side. Who's being cold now? <laughs> I'm telling you, man. No, I'm he's sorry. He's a sociopath. That, that, no, no, no. That 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 point I have to dispute. The the fact that we're, we're if we're saying that um, Holden is uh, manipulating Tench, he's um, manipulating everybody through the entire series. He manipulates his way into his own program. No, no, no I I didn't say he hasn't manipulated. I'm saying that specific interaction in in his clearest point of being able to show empathy and connecting with a person um, that that is. Um, a person who is able to connect emotionally. That is not fake. That is not manipulative. That's not using people as pawns. That's, I can connect with you over this. I'm also very confident that Holden Ford has a great deal of impulse control. That even though he skirts rules and raws and, and things like that, that, you know, at no point does he exhibit, and, and you have to remind me, but any signs of physical aggression towards anyone. No. Right? No. So at no point is he a danger to anybody else? He's not violent. Right. At all. Right. But he does a lot of bad stuff. Well, he he maybe he is in an ethical gray area. I will grant you that. But so the and the reason that I'm I I wanna sort of fight this point pretty strongly as well is that what I feel he actually exhibits is um something that's actually common in therapists, which is compassion fatigue and burnout. That when you are surrounded by people who are so consistently um, callous and doing these terrible things, that I think that is a big factor of what's happening here for Holden, that he is surrounded by people who do terrible things and feel no guilt or remorse about them. So it's not that that's contagious, but it's that when that is your life's work, it's difficult to separate you know, that from your non-work reality. All right, all right. Okay, everyone, we do have to really quickly do our ratings here. And if you haven't listened to the show before, every week, Ryan rates on a scale of one to five for the accuracy of the portrayal of whatever the media we're covering that week. And then I rate on a scale of one to five of how much I like something. Ryan, what do you got? So, Mike, so for Mindhunter, I did out of five Quanticos because I just love that name of that place. It's just like you hear the word Quantico and it's like, oh, man, that's like where either a secret villain hideout is or in this case, a location of the FBI headquarters. And this stuff is fascinating for me. It's hard for me to rate this anything but a five. Um, obviously, a lot of it is based on real people. So, you know, it's it's portrayal of people who really did these terrible things. And in that sense, it is a pretty accurate portrayal of antisocial personality disorder, which contains both uh, psychopathy and sociopathy. So it's psychopathy. I, I That's how I call it or say it. So it's not you psychopathy. Call it. I, I like psychopathy. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely more therapist. <laughs> uh, no. Um, okay, so I'm going to do today, on my rating scale, one out of five cigarettes. Because Bill Tinch has a cigarette in his mouth Ooh, yeah. for probably 97% of the entire series. He sure does. So, yes, he does. So out of one out of five cigarettes, Bill Tinch cigarettes, I'm going to go, and I've been thinking about this all day. Like I said, last episode... People got on to me about not being objective about my ratings. So going with a four. I think it's solid. If this had been three weeks ago, it would have been a five. <laughs> Before. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 for the record, I love this series. and I'm very excited for season two, which I think comes out soon. Yeah. It's, it's really, really good. Like if, if this stuff doesn't bother you at all, if it, if it interests you, watch it because they're, like the scenes when they're interviewing and just them working out the psychology is so fascinating. Like it will, it's just captivating. But what keeps it afloat is the fact that the in-betweens are really good too. It doesn't get a five though, because there are one or two episodes in season one that do drag pretty hard 
and they're just kind of filler. I hate filler in any TV show, so I'm going with a four. All right, Mike. There we go. All right, everyone. We got to get out of here for the day. And first, we do have to thank Kevin McLeod for doing all the music that we use on the show. You can find him and his royalty-free music at Incompetech.com. And Ryan, thanks for talking with me every week. Okay, so Mindhunter was a difficult show for me to talk about because I know firsthand the damage that can be caused by people with antisocial personality disorder, which includes psychopathic and sociopathic tendencies. But that shouldn't stop us from trying to understand and even help those who struggle with these mental health issues. First of all, if you think someone you love or someone you know exhibits some of the qualities that fall under antisocial personality disorder, the first thing you need to do is protect yourself. Knowing that people with antisocial personality disorder can have difficulty controlling their impulses and can be emotionally manipulative, it is important to set boundaries where you feel safe enough to do so. It can be dangerous to be too vulnerable around people with antisocial personality disorder characteristics as it can be so difficult to predict their behavior. Having an external support system is obviously greatly encouraged. As we mentioned in the episode, if you are wondering if you exhibit any of these personality characteristics, chances are you are self-aware enough to be sensitive to your impact on other people, and thus it's unlikely that you are antisocial. More likely, as with people I have worked with, you have experienced some difficult or even traumatic events that may have blunted or numbed your emotional experience, and this can absolutely be helped through therapy and other forms of emotional support if you're willing to get help. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you, as always, to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at PopPsych101. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. PopPsych101 is now on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.